In the pages of the BMJ, you'll have seen the conjecture that evidence-based medicine is broken. Whether that's because of distortion of evidence by financial interests, the lack of patient-centered outcomes in regulatory decisions, or by deficiencies in the application of the evidence. It's into that latter category that a recently published analysis falls. And I'm joined now by three of the authors who want to make evidence-based medicine work for individuals by changing the way we use guidelines. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by Julian Treadwell, who's a GP and Vice Chair of the Royal College of GPs Over Diagnosis Group. Hello, Julian. Thank you. Nice to be here. We also have Neil Maskery, Visiting Professor of Evidence-Informed Decision-Making at Keele University. Neil, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. And last but not least, we have Richard Lehman, who's a retired GP and the evidence blogger for the BMJ. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So, what's your creed occur here? What are you kind of asking? What's your, your problem that you want to, to fix with evidence-based medicine? Shall I start? Off you go, Neil. So I think there's a, there's a historical perspective that, that, that we perhaps started off with a modern history of evidence-based medicine 25 years ago. Um, and, and the notion was that the best available evidence would come into the decision-making. And historically, the decision-making was based on clinical expertise and the patient's values and preferences. So evidence-based medicine was always about improving the decision-making for individuals. Mm. What actually happened was that lots of effort went into bringing the evidence together into one place. So systematic reviews and guidelines would be perhaps the most prominent. So, so we now have huge repositories of collections of evidence to the extent where there are so much collected together that, that, that it's impossible for any one individual to read, remember and recall just when it's appropriate for mm -hmm. an individual mm -hmm. patient. So that's, the, so that's the first problem that we've, we've, we've answered, the problem of bringing the evidence together, but we haven't actually addressed how we use the evidence to help an individual in the consultation. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, so if, if we just start by talking about that, that evidence, you know, you, you mentioned systematic reviews and the, this pooling of populations. So the evidence is being based on, on larger and larger and therefore more and more general populations. So it's moving away from, from that individualised care. Do you think that's been a problem in this? Well, a guideline always depends on giving a label to the patient and then looking for the evidence under that label. Um, and that is starting from the wrong place in the first instance. And you then move on through this tram line, as David Haslam of NICE calls it, where you put the patient on that particular tram labeled diabetes type 2 and <clears throat> they go to the destination that the guidelines lead to and if you've arrived at <clears throat> that destination with a patient, ding, you get a payment. That is the extreme case and therefore you get a lot of aggregated evidence about various things that will make diabetic patients live longer. 
which they may or may not want to do. You have very little evidence about what will make them feel better. And you've got even less evidence about where you can place them in that stratum. And moreover, the trials are all done on simplified patients, where you, whereas you've got a complicated patient. And so you can see how a guideline-based industry can go for the what seem easy wins, quality markers, and leave this whole complexity process out of it. Um, and uh, this has been increasingly recognised. The trouble is it's been exploited as well in the wrong ways by drug companies, for instance, or specialist groups and pressure groups uh, so that everyone ought to have the same treatment. We need to step back from that because it's getting slightly absurd. And that was where this really began. And the way to get out of that, as Neil was saying, is to find out what's most important to the patient what the ballpark figures are for those treatments in relation to patients, and then try to sophisticate that knowledge uh, so that we can apply it to different groups. And that gets difficult. And then we suddenly realize that every different patient has a different set of preferences and values and other illnesses and social factors and matters of understanding and education, social context. So Unfortunately, all attempts to simplify medicine end up getting you back where you started in, 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 in a world of complexity. What we want, though, is not to lose the impetus of that effort to concentrate knowledge, to find out what works, but to incorporate it into a much richer way of doing medicine that does justice both to the evidence and to the patient, or let's put it the other way around, because that's the way it should be. Mm. So just to sort of back up on what you're saying now, you, there's the evidence about, you know, from from big studies, and then there's a seems to be a big missing chunk then about some of those those preferences, some of the, the patient-centred outcome things that you are mentioning there. Do you think that's a big problem that has distorted guidelines, just the, the lack of an evidence base about some things that really matter to patients? Yes, I think from the grassroots level, um, GPs are getting fairly exhausted after 15 years of guidelines with prescriptively adding treatments uh, onto patients uh, repeat medication lists and there's a on the one hand a desire to practice good evidence-based medicine do the right thing and offer people beneficial treatments but a, uh, a less evidenced uh, disturbing feeling we all have that we may be doing more harm than good mm. as we see very elderly people on uh, huge polypharmacy uh, and suffering side effects from them and uh, we're told that there's strength of evidence to support the active part of that process, adding in treatments. But there's very little direct evidence to um, support deprescribing mm. or define the amount of harm we might be causing or to or about how we um, elicit people's preferences and choice. Uh, and I think what we would like is for guidelines to change so that they're not things that are telling us what to do but they are resources that are supporting us in finding out what might be best for our patients. Mm. And, I mean, you mentioned GP's workload there. If you think about a clinical encounter for a GP with a, a 10-minute mm. window in which to elicit a history, mm. uh, do an examination, and then perhaps mm. 
start thinking about treatment pathways, there's a very limited time in which this can all be done. Um, what do GPs want when it comes to you know support uh, from a guideline or, or whatever it is to to actually make that clinical encounter better? Yeah. Most clinical encounters now have a, an element of doctor's agenda or system's agenda inserted into them. Uh, we have warnings flashing up on our computer screens and uh, quality and outcomes frameworks points to score. Mm. And we all feel, I think, that our mental space is dominated by that and that crowds out the needs of the patient and what they've come into the consulting room about. What would help is to have less to do uh, from the predetermined agenda um, which perhaps means reducing the contents of the quality and outcomes framework. Some mm -hmm. people would like to abandon it completely. Yes, at the same time, we do need to make sure we're offering patients evidence-based treatments. Um, there could be a long list of, a wish list of what might change, some of which is in this paper. Uh, I think it's about less prescriptive system-driven practice and more patient-centered mm. practice returning to listening rather than telling. Yep. And uh, Neil, you had uh, uh, a nice point with this about combining evidence and that patient-centred. We, 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 we quote in the paper a, a, a phrase which actually appeared um, a few months ago in a paper by uh, June Wells in JAMA, and, and, and they talk about a bifocal vision. So, uh, as Richard says, we don't want to lose... The, the, the resolute focus on quality healthcare based on the best available evidence. But that, of course, does come from population averages. So we need the near vision as well, which, as Julian's just been talking about, is focused on the characteristics and needs and preferences of the individual in front of us today. Um, and, and the latter requires fantastic consultation skills mm. um, and uh, you know general practice in modern times has been rooted in uh, developing consultation skills w w within general practitioners I've, I've, I've just come literally this morning from observing the Royal College of GPs clinical skills examination and and there's clearly an enormous amount of work that goes into um, developing the, the the near vision stuff but there's still more to be done because the the sorts of skills that are required now that when, when we have large amounts of evidence and at the same time uh, quite rightly, um, uh, increasing demands from individuals for high-quality, personalised care, then we're in a completely different situation than we were 20 years ago, either in terms of both the evidence and how we understand that, but also in terms of how we operate within consultations. I think things have, have, uh, have changed, not just in terms of multimorbidity, but that's probably the most dramatic expression of some of the changes that have happened. Mm. Um, and you mentioned in the paper a couple of examples of, of initiatives that are trying to help provide a framework in which, in which to sort of combine those, those two views, um, things like option grids and, and things like that. So have you got any sort of 
best practice that you would like to refer people to? Well, you, I, I think I think Neil hit it there with the the development of skills, the tools. Yes, they're very important, but the use of the tools is all important. And um, so the, the two have to go hand in hand, and it's going to be an iterative process that goes on for decades, if not hundreds of years, because this is the very essence of medicine. But we have to start somewhere. I mean, it, GPs in the, in the consultation, the 10-minute consultation as it still is, um, have to plump. At the end of, of every consultation, there's a plumping moment where you have to get something done or something agreed, a next step, um, an, an agreement to do nothing, an agreement to do something. Um, and that may be a, a, a constant process in chronic illness, it always is a constant process. It's one that's shared between different medical professionals, different nursing professionals, sharing of knowledge within the family, within the social group, and so on. We have to take all that into account. And so it's it, it, on the face of it, it seems impossible, which is why the old guideline model seems so nice and clear. We get the best evidence. We, we tell doctors, GPs in particular, to do it to people, and they get paid for doing as much of it as possible. I don't think any of us would say that the, that the decision aids or the summaries of evidence are not important. They're clearly an important stepping stone from the 700-page guideline to the brilliant consultation. It's that they, they, they might sit underneath a brilliant consultation if, if, if clinician or patient knows what the risks and benefits are and understands some of that, that helps with the end game of the decision making. But they're only a stepping stone. Would you agree, Julian? Yes, it's always my role in this conversation to um, to ch chip up for decision aids and their usefulness for GPs. Yeah. And I uh, entirely agree with what uh, Neil's saying about them being just the foundation. But there is a huge difference between GPs just receiving a binary instruction, which is do this or do not do this, uh, or something which is saying this is the benefit of this intervention with a ballpark figure of the scale of that, best expressed in absolute risk reduction or numbers needed to treat or those sorts of person-centred um, frames. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, has the potential to empower clinicians to think for themselves if they have some rough idea of uh, how good a treatment is essentially um, and from there you can then use that and fold it into the the uh, near focus mm. person-centered discussion which probably won't involve any numbers mm. so you're mm. sort of talking about an evolution of that and it sounds a little yeah. bit more like neil you want a, a revolution in this so is that what's the what's the way forward here um, I, I i think some structure to the production of patient decision aids would be great. At, at, at the moment, it's been a bit of a cottage industry, a, de a development or a project here, a, a, a pilot there. Mm. And, and, and I think um, everybody's agreed that um, a, a visual and textual representation of, 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 of key elements of care helps move from the population to the individual. It's much better to be having a conversation, having a better idea about the, the, the absolute benefits and the absolute risks of the options that are in the menu that are under consideration. 
No question that's better. So not having an approach at the moment, nationally or internationally, which, 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 which constructs patient decision aids for common conditions and for common interventions for those common conditions, feels like a real gap. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had an analysis um, talking about shared decision-making and how they were worried that without good, proper shared decision-making, actually this was being used as a panacea to push responsibility on, onto patients. Do you worry that by you know, creating shared decision-making tools without at the same time increasing those, those kind of talking, listening skills, um, there's a danger of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the norm to have an extensive time devoted to consultation skills during specialist training, general practice being the notable exception. Mm. And palliative care. Palliative care. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they have skills that we can learn from. But um, I think, yeah, I, I thought that was a good reality check article, actually. And um, But the 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 solution has to lie in going forward and not backward. Um, and, and it just points up the, the things that we're saying here today. We need a much better knowledge cycle uh, to make sure that the research that's done is applicable to patient decisions and then is applied to patient encounters. That's absolutely vital and that needs to be international. I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, so I suppose we've been having the sort of the quite long distance view here. Uh, and if we were to, to take that bifocal um, analogy and, and stretch it to breaking point, what is the kind of close-up vision here? What could an individual GP or, or a guideline development panel, what should they do next? Have you shall, got any? shall I go first on that and then see what other people think? Sure. Um, the first thing is to focus on the things that present commonly. So we need to get really good at... The, the things that come in on an everyday basis. So focus on, you know, diabetes, hypertension, asthma, depression, you know, the common infections. Let's not try and do everything all at once. And let's try and and, uh, and get good at knowing what the options are, what what the benefits of the interventions are, what uh, uh, and um, uh, and start to work on how to communicate those risks and benefits and to assess you know how much each individual patient knows about their problem and how much they know and about the options for treatment and which of those treatments they might prefer so start with the common things and let's start to explore alongside that I, I do think there's a, there's a, there's some mood music now which says w w we need to have a structured approach to the production of decision aids, which will help people with that step to having those conversations. And then the and then the third thing is is, is to move towards the development of a curriculum that covers the skills that would enable these brilliant conversations to be happening more often and more evenly. One plea for guideline developers would be that with each guideline recommendation there is an easily digestible uh, summary of evidence which answers the question why is this recommendation being made. Um, at the moment uh, if you with 
most guidelines, if you look at a recommendation, there is a long document which outlines the evidence in a few hundred pages, which no one ever reads. Uh, what should be fairly straightforward to do is at the end of a guideline development process that a summary of the evidence supporting a recommendation could be brought through to the front page or the second page of a guideline, which would be a really helpful step, I think. Um, and NICE have done some useful work over the last few years with the statin decision aid, the atrial fibrillation decision aid. Uh, they've had a go at doing type 2 diabetes and glycemic targets recently, and all these things are really, really positive uh, steps in the right direction, but it would be good if that was a, an inbuilt and um, permanent fixture in guideline development process. Yes, I'd, I'd go for, further and say that you know guidelines should have it as their final destination to produce a usable decision aid to be shared between patients and health professionals. That is what the guideline committee should set out to do and the evidence synthesis and so on should all be directed at that. Yes, it's a nice concept of a menu of options which we were talking about earlier and the menu I think would look very much like a guideline does but would have a different tone. You've been listening to Julian Treadwell, Neil Maskery and Richard Lehman talk about their analysis article, Making Evidence-Based Medicine Work for Individual Patients, which is now available on thebmj.com.